invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 10. Broadsided you this morning with a topical message this evening. Uh, we're back in Jeremiah and uh, plugging right along. One of the hallmarks of history as it relates to man's eventual destiny in one or two places, either heaven or hell, is that it comes down to a choice. God has revealed himself to man, and then man has a choice to make, to exercise himself for God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, or to exercise himself for himself in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. On the one side, there is that narrow way, constrained, it asks men to be willing to yield the rights of this life in order to receive the tremendous rewards of the life to come. It asks men to be willing to lose out on the immediate advantages of the material in order to gain the future advantages of the spiritual. On the other side, there is a road that the Bible calls, Jesus calls, broad. The default road. It's a road that says, do what you will, live this life to the fullest, Kind of an eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Get yours now because there's no promise of tomorrow type existence. It's a life that is about the now. In motivation and in intention. E even if one believes in some future, even if one believes in some afterlife, the broad way does not properly connect the state of this life to the realities of the life to come. And the Bible says that everyone makes this choice. Everyone makes these choices. And that's, in part, what we're going to study together this evening. Recall last time we were together, it was a couple of weeks ago, and we focused upon the realities of the knowledge of God. We looked at Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 as the culmination of these messages of judgment. And we considered that verse, one of which we memorized that we are called, the mighty, the wise, the honorable, are called not to glory in their wisdom and in their might and in their riches, but rather let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That the glory of a man is to know his God. That in the knowledge of God there is blessing. In the knowledge of God there is joy and there is peace. And if we're rightly adjusted, related to God, then knowing God will be our highest aspiration. Because for all those that know Him, it is indeed their highest joy. And the more we know Him, the more we desire to serve Him. Because the more we understand Him, the more we love Him. Now, this naturally gives way to a discussion about choices. So last week, Jeremiah uh, speaks and he says, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knows the Lord. God speaking, actually, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And we pick up very much in that context. I, I wanted to reframe your mind on that this evening because, of, of course, as we've seen regularly throughout the book of Jeremiah, our context is, is very much continuing here. So we read this in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 10. The Bible says, Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the sign, signs of heaven, 
for the heathen are dismayed at them. Now, it's very important that we read these words as a continuation of the last chapter. In the last chapter, Jeremiah and the Lord say, if you want to glory in anything, glory in your knowledge of the Lord. Right? And now we see a contrast where he says, don't learn the way of the heathen. Don't learn the way of the pagan. Don't learn the way of the world around you. And immediately we have to ask the question, who is the house of Israel here? Recall earlier in the book of Jeremiah, we saw quite plainly that when God addressed Israel, he was talking to the northern ten tribes, right? We had seen how God was addressing them, though they had been in captivity for a hundred years at this point, and saying how he was going to restore them, and saying how his heart was upon them, and how his love was upon them. And so the question is here, are we talking about Israel in that northern tribe sense, or are we talking about Israel in more of the standard Israel, broad the tribal, the whole nation sense. And as we read from the context, it would seem that God is speaking in broader terms here. He's not addressing the nation of Israel uh, as in the northern tribes, but rather the nation of Israel, the entire stock of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, including Judah, not attempting to distinguish, distinguish between them here. And, and there's, um, of course, argument can be made about that, but there's nothing within this context that would lend itself to the idea that God is singling out the northern tribes which have gone into captivity as he had earlier in the book. And the theme of the message is introduced in verse 2. The theme of chapter 10, if we can say it that way, is introduced in verse 2. God tells them, don't learn the way of the heathen. Don't seek for signs in the heavens, and so be dismayed as the, he as the heathen seek for signs in the heavens and are dismayed. The idea here is paganism. The, the, the problems and, and the dangers and the issues that are, are associated with paganism. Astrologers, those who seek for signs, those that read signs and then announce good or ill. God says this is not the way to understand what's coming. This is not the way to understand your relationship to the things that are in this world. If you want to understand your relationship, if you want to have some level of security, if you want to understand how things work, don't go to read the signs in the heavens. Uh, know the Lord. Know the Lord. If you want to understand how you are to relate to this world, know the Lord. Seek the Lord. Don't be dismayed at the things the heathen are dismayed at. Seek the Lord. Unfortunately, however, this isn't really how we're wired as humans, is it? Humans love to chase after signs and wonders. We love to look for these things. We love to seek for secret knowledge, hidden knowledge, future knowledge. Um, we love to, to try to take disparate pieces and put them together in a way that may not make sense, but in a way that makes us feel like there's some level of security. We love to seek reasons for things. And, and especially Israel sure loved to go after signs and wonders, didn't they? As a matter of fact, still today, Israel loves signs and wonders. One of the things that has fascinated me about our study in the, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is how much, as we see the things happening in the book of the Revelation, how much it focuses in on the signs and the wonders that are intended to show Israel that this is happening at the hand of God. How many of the signs and the wonders in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ are prophesied in the Old Testament so that Israel will look at them and say, this is God. So God continues. 
And he continues talking about the, the people, the heathens, the customs, in verses 3 and 4. And he says this, For the customs of the people are vain, empty. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. So God warns the nation against trusting the way of the heathen. And the first element of this way... It was reading the signs in the heavens. This is the way of the heathens. They look for signs where there are no signs. The second way of the heathen is pagan customs and traditions. Now, in this case, the custom and tradition, as it's described here, is described as cutting down a tree, standing it up with nails and hammers, and decking it with silver and gold. Now, I mentioned before, a couple of weeks ago, as we talked about uh, this, the concept of the queen of heaven... That there are people that connect this to what we call today the Christmas tree. Right? They'll say, see, the heathen, they cut down a tree, they fasten it upright, and they deck it with silver and with gold. But this actually seems to be very unlikely as what this passage is talking about. And let me show you why. It, not just in these two verses, but in the verse that is to come. It seems far more likely that this is speaking of idol creation. The creation of wooden Idols that they cut down trees, they work the work of a workman, right? Form it, carve it into whatever they want it to be. And then after they've worked the work of the workman, they deck it with silver and gold. They, they cover the idol. And this was generally how idols were made. M many idols were not made out of solid pieces of gold. They take wood, they'd make the form in wood, and then they would cover that wood in gold. As a matter of fact, even the Ark of the Covenant was made out of wood, and then it was covered in gold. All of the pieces of the tabernacle were made of different materials and then covered in precious metals. And so this would not have been an uncommon thing. So we see here they cut the tree out of the forest, the work with the hand of the workmen, and then they deck it with silver and gold, and then they fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. Now, why would we think that um, this, you say, Pastor, this could be a tree. This could be the roots of the tree. But notice what we see in verse 5. They are upright as the palm tree, but they speak not. They must needs be born, carried, right? B-O-R-N-E, born, as in to bear something, not to birth something, right? They must needs be carried, born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, Neither also is it in them to do good. Now, here's the thing. Would anybody, even in a pagan culture, cut down a tree, put that tree up, deck the tree with silver and gold, and then say, now talk to me, tree. Now walk, tree. No. You see, the, by implication here, this thing that they've cut down, that the workman has worked, that they've decked with silver and gold, they are saying it can't talk. It can't walk. But it might look like it could talk, right? Because it might look like a person or some bullheaded god or some fish-headed god or whatever, but it can't talk. It might look like a person in that this bullheaded god or this fish-headed god or whatever might have legs, but it can't walk anywhere. If you want the god to go from this temple to that temple, you have to pick it up and carry it over to that temple. He can't, he can't, he can't get himself there. He can't do you evil and he can't do you good. So don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of the pagan gods because they can't do anything. They're made of wood, right? They have no power. 
You can throw it in a garbage can and it can't do anything to you. So God says, don't be afraid of these gods. And this is why I don't believe that, that we're talking about still a tree here that's cut down, that's re-erected, and that's decorated. I think we're talking about a tree that's cut down, molded into a god, dipped in silver or gold, and then placed up somewhere to be worshipped. Right? I think that's what we're talking about here. And I think the context bears that out. So God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the sky readers who claim terrible calamities by reading the heavens. Don't be afraid of the people that say the stars are aligning. Don't be afraid of the people that say, "Uh uh-oh, the horoscope is really bad this week. Don't be afraid of any of that stuff because it's all just a bunch of malarkey. Don't be afraid of these false gods, these pagan idols, which don't even have the capacity to communicate. They can't communicate to their followers. They can't even move. It is not in them to do evil. And by the way, it's not in them to do good either. There's no, they are nothing. So God says reject this way. Do you see the contrast between the end of Jeremiah 9 and what we're seeing now? Glory in the Lord. Glory in knowing Him. Why? Because He is the true God. And we're going to see that several times within this chapter. Because He is the true God. Don't glory in. Don't be afraid of. Don't give any thought to. Don't give any precedent unto. Don't give anything to these pagan ideas. They're nothing. You serve the true and the living God. You have the true and the living God right here. So God says, reject this way. Don't learn of it. Don't learn of it, he says. Don't even worry about it. It's a fruitless endeavor. If you want to put your mind to something useful, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Glory in the Lord. Spend your time learning of the Lord. And this is the point as we continue. Verses 6 and 7. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, Jeremiah writes, Thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain. For as much as among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. The exclusivity of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, that's what we're talking about this evening. We're talking about all of the things that might compete with God for our time. All of the things that might compete with God for the, our mental effort. Uh, I appreciated in Nelson's prayer this evening that as he prayed for the college students, he emphasized, help them to know doctrine. And then he added academics to it. Great, great perspective on the college years. Because while our young people are busy learning and growing and preparing for what is to come, there is nothing that can be learned in the classroom Nothing that is graded, no amount of effort as it relates to tests that is as important as our knowledge of God. Now, does that mean that we don't pursue other, other knowledge? No, no, no. That's not, I mean, the, the knowledge that's being spoken of here is not academic knowledge, it's pagan knowledge, right? But what, what, what we are saying is there is nothing in this life that compares to God. And if there's nothing that compares to God, and if God has revealed Himself, then there should be nothing more worthy of our time than to learn of Him, than to know Him. Why not trust these idols of wood? Why not 
trust these readers of the skies because they are powerless. They have nothing to offer anyone. But the Lord, the Lord is a great God. His name is great. Remember that when we talk about the name of God, we're not talking about G-O-D, right? We're not talking about J-E-S-U-S. We're not talking about his moniker. We're talking about the essence of his character. That when I say, I, when you talk about the name of Wickler, the, the thing that comes to mind is not W-I-K-L-E-R. It's what is my reputation? He has a good name in the community. He has a good name among his friends. He has a good name in his church. What does that mean? That means that my character, my actions, my words, my deportment, the things that are me are thought of positively. So that when someone says Pastor Wickler, the things that come to one's mind are generally speaking positive if I have a good name. The name of God is great in might. His attributes are great. So who would not fear him is the question. Who would not fear thee? O king of nations. A very similar phrase to king of kings, right? In, in the state of king of kings, the, the, uh, our God is exalted above the leaders of nations. In this case, he is the king of nations. He is exalted above the nations themselves. And in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto God. Unto God, all things appertain. Everything is subservient to God. Everything is under God. Everything pertains to God. Nothing is beyond his notice. Nothing is beyond his power. There's no wise man that can compete with the Lord in wisdom. There's no mighty man that can compete with God in might. And I don't really need to substantiate Jeremiah here, really. This is, this is the God we serve. But may I quote Isaiah 40 here, perhaps just for effect? Isaiah 40, verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. This is our God. He's so much greater than man, so far above man. It's almost comical to think that people will open the paper every day to read their horoscope, but won't open their Bible to learn of the God of the universe. It's absurd. To think that people will turn to idols made by the hands of men and worship those idols rather than worshiping the God of all creation. But, verses 8 and 9, but they are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But, Jeremiah writes, they are all together, and he uses two words here, brutish and foolish. Foolish, we know, of course. Brutish means insensible, means stupid. He says they are insensible and they are absolutely foolish. See, here's the thing. Who would not fear thee? And the, the, the natural answer would be, of course, no one would not fear God. He's the one that created all things. The nations are as nothing. No one would not fear God. But you know what? A lot of people don't fear God <laughs> because they're brutish. They're, they're, they're stupid. 
They're foolish. They are insensible. They are out of their minds. Who in their right mind would not fear the Lord? Which gives us insight into not how actually like mindless people are, how, how deceptive sin is, right? Gives us insight into just how deceptive sin is, just how powerful the flesh is. Because even as believers, fearing the Lord is not an easy thing, is it? It's not a default, just kind of, I'm going to wake up and, yep, everything's going to be in the fear of the Lord today. We have to purpose. We have to determine. We have to discipline. We have to meet with the Lord. We have to seek Him in prayer. We have to, 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 to diligently walk in the Spirit if we are going to fear the Lord. And yet, as Jeremiah has done so often, I think Jeremiah was a sarcastic guy. I really think he was a sarcastic guy. And the reason why I say that is because there have been so many times as Jeremiah has been writing, and we know that the writings of the prophets uh, were not uh, separated from their character. And as, as, as we see God relaying himself through Jeremiah and the prophets, how many times has Jeremiah appealed to simple reason? Just like, hey, just think for a minute. Just think about God. Just think about who He is. Just think about what He's done. Just think about what He's capable of. And and then sort yourself out a little bit here, Israel. Because this makes no sense. Your rebellion makes no sense. If you want to talk about something that makes no sense, we read in that missionary letter of Missionary Cray and talking about this man that would mock the the Crays and and the missionaries there for um, for their belief in God. And yet, if you want to talk about something unreasonable, let's talk about the people that believe that a piece of wood that they created with their own hands and covered with gold has done something for them. Let's talk about the people that believe that nothing created something. Let's talk about that as foolishness here. And let's think about the marks of creation which are all over, that there is design here, and, and, and let's extol the king of nations. Within this context of vanity, God describes things which are, in fact, way more impressive than wooden idols overlaid with gold. He says here, silver spread into plates is brought from Tarshish. So these plates that apparently someone in Tarshish was very skilled, and they would take silver, and they would etch it or overlay it in some way, perhaps into some beautiful design into these plates. That takes a tremendous amount of skill. That is beautiful. Then he talks about gold from Euphaz. I don't know what it was about this gold, but, but perhaps more pure. Or maybe they would go through the process of deep purification. The work of the workmen, the hands of the founder. So uh, the idea of purifying it and shaping it. And, and they, they, perhaps they had tremendous uh, um, golden um, statues or something. Blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men, talking about the weaving of the blue and the purple together and and the beautiful garments that are made. And God says all of these things that that are beautiful, these works of cunning men, these works of capable men. And you know what's ironic about this? Is that the idols are nowhere near as intricate, nowhere near as beautiful as these plates of Tarshish as the cunning work of this, the, the, those that, that made this clothing, those that founded and worked on these, these golden overlays. And yet for all of that, they're still spending their time worshiping these idols. Not even the men that made them. Not even the men that made them. They're worshiping the stone. They're worshiping the wood. They're worshiping the gold. Not even the men that formed them into something beautiful. 
Now who's being foolish? Now who's being insensible? Okay, enough time considering the silliness of men. Let's get back to the character of God. Verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. As we turn back to the character of God, it, it comes this time with a reminder about why all of this matters. Why does it matter that, we're, we, that we glory in the Lord? Why not? I mean, who cares whether or not we, we worship this thing or that thing? Why does it matter at all? So people aren't giving God his due. They've chosen their silly God. So they're fools. But what they don't understand and what we often perhaps fail to remember is that the stakes of our decisions in this regard are quite high, are they not? God isn't in the heavens just kind of feeling like a kid on the playground who has been picked last without any recourse or justifiable reason to expect anything different. The poor kid who just has to take it when he's picked last or not picked at all just has to say, okay, and put his head down and go sit and watch everyone play. That's not God. God is a great king whose creation is actively slighting his authority and his power. God is a patient sovereign whose holiness and justice is daily being offended by people who only get away with it because of God's long-suffering. The Lord is the true God, the living God, the everlasting king. He is not like those idols which could be thrown into the garbage can without any recourse or incurring any sort of penalty. God is full of holiness and justice. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble. His creation must acknowledge him or suffer the wrath of his indignation. Unless we say, so then God is temperamental and self-centered? It's all about God? No. God is the boss worthy of every regard and more of anything that man could possibly give him. To say that God is touchy, to say that God is self-centered, to say that God is temperamental would be like going into someone's house, burning it to the ground, and then telling them they have no right to be angry at what you've done. It's kind of a silly thing. We are God's creation. We are marring His creation. We are offending His creation as His creation doesn't he have the right to be upset? Doesn't he have the right to mete out justice? Doesn't he have the right to do as he will? And this leads us into a sort of hymn of praise unto our Lord, intended to help us know him better, beginning in verse 11. We read in verses 11 and 12, Thus shall ye say unto them, God speaking to Jeremiah, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. So God commands Jeremiah to tell the people within the context of him being the true and everlasting God that all of the false gods that are around them, you know those false gods that didn't create the heavens and the earth? They're going to perish. One day they're going to be nothing. There are false gods all around us. Every Sunday, there are tens of thousands of people that go to their churches and worship the false gods in stadiums around this country during NFL games. And one day, those stadiums are going to crumble and be no more. And one day, all of those people that they worship on the field are going to be dead and buried, and they will be no more. 
And one day, all of the people that are following the Buddha and following Muhammad and following all of these false gods that are worshipping their ancestors, that are worshipping uh, um, Krishna, that na- 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 name the god, one day those gods will be no more, those people will be no more, those things will perish from off the earth. But the Lord, He made the earth. He established the world by His Wisdom. He stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Comprehend with me for just a moment the monumental greatness of our God. How high he is. How great he is. He's beyond time. He's beyond creation. He does not decay as we decay. He is eternal. He was there when all this stuff started. He'll be there when it's all gone. This is the God we serve. We have no natural right to even be uttered in the same breath as God. We'll talk about that more in a moment. I'm going to get to encouraging stuff here in a little bit. Verse 13 continues along these lines, considering God's greatness as it relates to his creative capacity and his power. We read this. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. So through some poetic language here, through some imagery here, it speaks of God uh, creating and then uh, nurturing the earth through the rain and the thunderings and, and bringing the wind uh, and, and all of these elements of, of the Lord's doing. Verses 14 and 15, God relates mankind himself to God. And we read this, Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. Every man, God says, is brutish. There's that word again, insensible, stupid, nonsensical, impotent, in light of God. The greatest creators that this world has ever seen. And there have been some great ones. I was marveling the other day. I, uh, I, I was taking apart a, a computer, trying to pull off the CPU from the motherboard, and I bent the pins, and it was very much so a discouraging process. But that being said, it gave me a little bit of opportunity to look a little bit closer. You try not to even look at it cross-eyed or else things break. And, and it's already broken, so I can look at it a bit closer. Fascinating. Motherboard, CPUs, the process of building a computer. Fascinating. The kind of stuff they can pack into a little phone. I mean, the amount of technology in this thing, just fascinating. Works of art. But then you think of other works of art. You think of the Colosseum, and you think of the pyramids, and you think of the Sphinx, and you think of, uh, of, of the, the hanging walls of Babylon in their day, and you think of the Taj Mahal, and, and you think of all of these things, and you say, wow, man's capacity to create is amazing. But you know what's interesting about all of their capacity to create? They can't create life. For all of the graven images of these founders all of their knowledge, there's no breath in anything that they've created. All they can do is seek to come somewhere near to some level of beauty that's already existed in God's creation. All of this being said, 
this doesn't mean that mankind is nothing to God. In fact, mankind, for all of God's wonder and power, as I mentioned, man not being worthy to be spoken of in the same breath as God, you know what's most amazing? Mankind does matter to God. God does care about us. And there's a particular remnant of mankind who has exercised their love toward God, their wills toward God, and God speaks of these, this remnant, as he continues. And notice the love and the fondness with which he speaks for them as we continue in verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. The portion of Jacob, God says, is not like these other men. The portion is special to the Lord, and the Lord is special to them. Now, he's not speaking of the particular people that are being spoken of, Jeremiah is writing to, uh, so much so, of course, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago that God said to Jeremiah, find one man who is righteous, and I will spare the city. And, of course, that was intended to reflect that there was not a man righteous left. But he still speaks of the portion of Jacob, the former of all things. Israel, that is the rod, the power, the, the, the distinction of God's inheritance. He's speaking here of people that have a different relationship with God, of those that love God, of those that know God for who he is. God loves the world, but those who love God back there's something special to him. Now, we've walked through 10 chapters of Jeremiah as of today. And through it all, we must not take away simply that God is angry and that he is holy. We'll read it in a few moments, but let us consider for a moment how much God loves the world. Let us consider for a moment the pain that is in God's heart. The God whose Son is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, who gave special care to a small family, the family of Abraham, then of Isaac, then of Jacob, which became a great nation, who he nurtured and who he protected and who he loved and who he blessed, only to see the seed of that nation reject him. So we read as we continue in verses 17 and 18. Gather up thy wares out of the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once, and will distress them, that they might find it so. So God sets up a choice in verse 17 and 18, which boils down effectively to this. God says, Gather up the wares of the land. Gather up the idols and fling them out. Because if you don't gather the idols and fling them out, then I'm going to gather you and fling you out. Notice the choice is still on the table. Remember that God is yet pleading with them to repent. Yes, God is angry, but you know what else God is? God is longing for His people to return to Him. Verses 19 and 20. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said truly this is a grief and I must bear it. My tabernacle is spoiled, and all my cords are broken. My children are gone, gone forth of me, and they are not. There is none to stretch forth my tent anymore and to set up my curtains. This is God mourning. This is God saying, woe 
is me. Why? He says, they've spoiled my tabernacle. Now, at this time, we recognize that the temple exists, not the tabernacle. So we're looking at some poetic language here. While the temple exists, this is what God is saying. My tabernacle is empty. That whereas I would desire them to string the tent across the frame so that they may know me, instead the cords have been cut. They've cut the cords so that the tent cannot be strung up. There's no one left to stretch that tent across the frame to create a place for me to gather with my people. Metaphorically here, do you see what God is saying? That though the temple might still stand in the hearts of the people, they've already torn it down. They're not close to him. They don't want to know him. They're not interested in abiding with him. And so God says, woe is me for my hurt. God's sorrowful because he wants to dwell with his people, but they don't want to dwell with him. What a thought, hmm? That the God of the universe says, tabernacle with me. Have your presence with me. Abide with me. And man says, no thanks. Verses 21 and 22. For the pastors are become brutish. We've seen that word a lot in this chapter. And have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Behold, the noise of the bruit is come, and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of dragons. Once again, God turns his ire against those who should be the most stable in the land. He turns his anger against the pastors, the ones that ought to be leading the people into the knowledge of him, not away from the knowledge of him. We're reminded once again of the tremendous responsibility that is borne by those who claim the mantle of representing God. God calls them brutish, insensible, stupid, uh, with lacking in common sense, lacking in knowledge. Because they have not sought the Lord. And he says, to this end you will not prosper. To this end your flocks will be scattered. Well, do you remember what we've seen already in, 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 the, in the book? The flocks have been the ones that they fleeced, right? The, the, the flocks are the ones that they've been cutting up for meat. That they've, been, that they've been taking advantage of. God says, here's the thing, pastors. If I scatter your flock, you don't get money anymore. If I scatter your flock, you don't get to live off of the fat of the flock anymore. And then he says to them, this is where the warning kind of becomes real again. He says, the noise of the bruit has come. A bruit is a person charged with reporting or making a loud noise. Uh, in this case, we'd probably assume a watchman, someone to blow a trumpet, a bruit, a noisemaker. My children are bruits. Not, not in this sense, though. But that's the idea, right? Someone charged with making a noise. Jeremiah writes that, the time is at hand where the enemy will come. Once again, we see this idea. Do you, you remember how we've heard it in several other chapters? Jeremiah says he's heard the noise of the trumpets in Dan. Or he's heard the noise of the trumpets and he's given various cities where he's heard the noise of the trumpets, that which is coming upon them. Why? Why is the time at hand for Judah to be made desolate and a den of dragons? Because they have not known the Lord. In the final verses of this chapter, we find that the message has actually become deeply personal to Jeremiah as he has delivered it. And his own emotions are seen in verses 23, 24, and 25. 
And he begins by turning his heart inward. And this is something that every pastor, every proclaimer of the truth ought always to do. That when one proclaims the truth, that message must first be turned inward before it gets turned outward. We must first understand my relationship to it before I can help you understand your relationship to it. So he says this in verses 23 and 24. He says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Jeremiah prays what is effectively a prayer of humble confession. He acknowledges on account of God's greatness and power that the way of man is not in himself. That if we try to do it our own way, according to our own understanding, without the blessing of the revelation of God, we're in trouble, right? Why? Because the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Because without the light of life, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a, and, and a light unto my path, then what do we have left? We have left our hearts, and our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so Jeremiah says, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. He says, I know that I don't know. <laughs> I know how much I don't know. I know how much I need you. I know how much I need your help. Can you see the parallels here? Can you see us being drawn back to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24? But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Can you see how we're being drawn back to the preeminence of the word of God and the importance of knowing sound doctrine? He says, correct me, Lord. But notice the way that he would like to be corrected. He begs God for the strength to make his days of worth and value because if it were up to us, there would simply be nothing of virtue in our own way. He says, would to God that you would correct me, but not in your anger, rather in your judgment. This should be our prayer. God, I know that I'm not what I should be. So please correct me, but in your love, not in your anger. I long for the day when my children come up to me and say, Dad, what can I do better? How can I be better? That my children would have the humility to come up and be corrected by me before I have to correct them in judgment. would to God that we would have the humility of heart to go to God in all genuineness and to express our need for him and to express that we, are, we know we are not what we ought to be and to ask God to purge us, to correct us, to give him the keys to our lives and ask him in love to purge us, to burn off the dross. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. But how much better when we can ask God to judge us in that manner than to judge us in chastening. Because we know God and we know that anything that God will do if we ask Him to purify our lives will be to make us better. And anything that we take away from such experiences will be better. And I know this because I trust Him and I love Him. So Jeremiah looks inward and he says, God, correct me. And the idea here is, God, I'm asking you to correct me and I'm asking you to do it in, in, in your way, not to be forced by my hand to do it in a, in a way that where I have 
invoked the indignation of your wrath. Right? There are two ways that we can be corrected by God. We talk about this uh, every month, every other month, uh, as we go through the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, but if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Right? What's the idea there? Lord, show me my faults. Help me to correct them so that you don't have to correct them in other ways. So that you don't have to hit me with a two-by-four. I'm here to get the lesson. That's what Jeremiah is praying here. Do you see how his contemplations of the greatness of God has drawn him unto a desire to get closer, a desire to get right, a desire to align with God more? Then he turns outward. Verse 25, Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For they have eaten up Jacob and devoured him and consumed him and have made his habitation desolate. Jeremiah then gets very upset because he's thinking back to the time when Jacob was the Lord's and the Lord was Jacob's. And he says, God, destroy the people that have done this to your inheritance. God, pour out your fury on those who have rejected you. Now make no mistake, in praying this, Jeremiah is praying against many of his own people. But the point is not an us versus them idea. The point is that Jeremiah knows God. He knows the relationship Israel once had with God. And he longs for God to do what is necessary to restore his people to a proper relationship with the true and living God. Jeremiah is getting on God's side. And when we know God and we love God, this is what we do. We get on God's side. Which brings us to three points of application this evening. Point number one. And this, I, I, I am turning the points this evening in a direction of encouragement. Point number one, we had no right to anything from God naturally until God bought for us that right in mercy. First this evening, I'd like for us to contemplate the mercy of God. Remember that God owes you nothing. Owes me nothing. Owes mankind Nothing. He created you. He owns you. Your rebellion could have, and in a manner of speaking, should have sealed your fate and destruction. But God didn't do that, did He? Your fate was not sealed unto destruction. Why not? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, made us alive, quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Natural justice means we should be and are by nature the children of wrath. We walked according to the course of this world. We did what we wanted. We did what the prince of the power of the air wanted. But God, one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, but God, We were lost without hope. Children of wrath by nature, even as others. 
living in the lust of our flesh and the desires of our flesh. But God. We had no strength to do anything. No strength to save ourselves. No strength to establish our own righteousness for good or for ill. No strength to get ourselves out of the path of judgment. But God. But God so loved the world. But God poured out his mercy. But God commendeth his love toward us. But God sent his son to die on the tree. But God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. God, for his great love toward us, saved us from our sins. And if you have come to the place in your life where you have realized this, that you are a sinner, that you have been separated from God by virtue of your own sinful heart, that you cannot earn your way to God, you cannot be worthy of his salvation, you cannot work your way to God, you cannot deserve anything from God, but that God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for your sins, to do for you what you could not do for yourself, to reconcile you unto the Father. And that Jesus then was buried. And that he rose again bodily three days later in victory over sin and over death and over the grave. And that those who accept this purchase, which Jesus made for them, no strings attached, but they have to accept it without any plan B. Those who, who place their full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to do for them what they cannot do for themselves, repenting of any and every dead work that they might be trusting in that they think could earn them favor with God unto heaven and putting their faith in Christ alone, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've done that this evening, if you are thus by faith a child of the living God, you need to remember this evening that God did this not because you deserved it, but in fact, he did this explicitly because you cannot deserve it. We had no right to anything from God by nature until God bought us that right in mercy. Because he did this, whereas when you were lost in your trespasses and sins, you had no right to anything from God, no right to a relationship with God, far from God as you could be, you need to remember this evening that you have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second point. We have no right to expect anything from God naturally, yet we've been given the right to expect things from God by grace. So in God's mercy, He gave us a standing which we cannot earn. He has given us, he has brought us into a relationship with God that we could not deserve. That as we consider what Jeremiah wrote this evening, that God is above all things, that he is the king of nations, that there is no God like God, that he is so high and so above that we do not deserve to be mentioned in the very, even in the same breath as God. Yet God has made us nigh. Yet God has given us the right to expect his power in us, and his blessing. And this is, in a word, the marvelous grace of God. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, the song says, freely bestowed 
on all who believe. So we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have, by God's grace, the capacity to expect from God His help. Ephesians chapter 2. We already read verses 1 through 5. I'm skipping uh, verses 7, 8, 9, 10. That's kind of a bummer, but they're good, of course. You know Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Probably most of you by heart, but let's, let's pick up in verse 11 here. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision... By, them, by, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus you, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ." You who were sometimes way out there, away from God, away from His blessings, away from His promises, are now in here, right in the midst of God's blessings and God's promises. That's special. And you know what makes it all the more special? Is that God is so high. God is so great. God is incomprehensible. God is untouchable. There's no wisdom of man that can touch the wisdom of God. There's no might of man that can touch the might of God. And we dwell in the inner tabernacle with Him. The great, the true, the everlasting God has brought us near to Him. If I may put it this way, the impossible has been made possible. And not only has the impossible been made possible, but the inaccessible has been made accessible. You can go to God moment by moment, daily, directly, walk in His power, moment by moment, walk in the Spirit, moment by moment, be filled with His love, moment by moment, be filled with His presence and His peace and His joy, moment by moment, walk in His power, moment by moment, because you have been brought near to Him. You have a personal relationship with the God of the universe the God of all flesh, our Creator. We do have the right to come before Him. We do have the right to pray to Him. We do have the right to expect His love and His blessing because we are children of the living God. But just because we have the right doesn't mean we've earned the right, right? No. Christ earned the right. Christ earned that right for us and gave it to us as a gift of love. And this should change the way we think. This should change the way we act. Because Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Christ has taken us the farthest things away from the power of God, from the mercy of God, from the love of God, and He has brought us right into the arms of God. And that should change us. And that brings us to our final point. The greatness of God on your behalf should form the context of your interactions with Him. This is what Jeremiah 10 is about. Jeremiah 9, at the end of Jeremiah 9, know the Lord. Glorify, if you're going to glorify in anything, glory in this, that you know the Lord. And then he turns around and he says, this is, this is the God that you serve, and this is his comparison as it relates to the things of man, as it relates to the idols, as it relates to the cunning works, as it relates to these things that doesn't even compare. God is so great. God is so high. But for all of God's greatness and for all of God's heights and for all of God's holiness and for all of God's righteousness, for all of those things unto which we simply cannot attain, do you know what? 
we can still know him. We can still have a relationship with him. He has still tabernacled with us. Jeremiah prayed unto God, and first he acknowledged that he had no capacity in himself to direct his own way. So he said, God, direct me. Direct me in gentleness. Don't direct me in, 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 in your anger. He falls before the great throne into which he has been given access in the deepest of humility. And he asks God to direct his steps. And this is the fear of the Lord. This is how God changes us. Because when we know God, we understand just how much we need God. How much we need to change. Just how much us, in and of ourselves, is not sufficient. And that's okay, because through Christ, we are complete. Complete in Him. This is the fear of God. So we fling ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of God and proactively ask Him to make us what we need to be. And we want it. We want to be what He needs us to be. And then you know what? The Christian life changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the Christian life is not just, well, rules, well, I have to keep not doing what I want to do and doing what I don't want to do. If that's the Christian life to you, look, you, you don't know God. You don't know Him. Because the Christian life is more like this. God has saved us from eternal damnation. God has taken us, He being the inestimable Creator God, and us being uh, the dust, and He has elevated us to His throne room. And we stand in the glory of God and we say, I am not what I ought to be, but God, with your help, I can be what you would have me to be. And that's what it means to know the Lord. This is wisdom. And this was the prayer of David. And this is the prayer I want to leave you with this evening. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm. And at the end of Psalm 139, David says these words. Verses 23 and 24, Psalm 139. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What's amazing about this psalm is that we see Jeremiah ask God to search him and correct him at the end of this tremendous revelation of the character of God, right? In Jeremiah 10, extolling God and his greatness. Well, if you read Psalm 139, you'll find a very similar theme. And at the end of David's extolling the greatness of God and the wonders of God as it relates to him as a created being, we see David say a similar thing. God, search me. Know me. Try my heart. See what's wicked. Show it to me and lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to become different. And this must be the prayer of our hearts as well. My, my, my desire this evening is that you have learned, been reminded of, been drawn unto the character of the God that we serve, and that as you have been drawn into the character of the God that you serve, there's been a part of you, that part of you that is driven by the Spirit of God, that is welled up with a desire through the knowledge of God to become more like Him, to be drawn nearer to Him, to be purified, to be, to be, to be made 
more like what God would have you to be, that, that it would well up inside of you this desire to get down on your knees and say, okay, God, what's wrong and how can it be made right? How can I be made better? How can I be drawn nearer? How can I become more like you? How can I be brought nearer to you? How can I be brought into a deeper knowledge of you? And the question is, how are you doing this evening? Are you walking in the light of the Lord? Asking God to make your path straight. Do you know him? Is this the desire of your heart? Are you being drawn nearer to him? Have you ever prayed this prayer? This is not an actu- actually not an easy prayer to pray. God, strip those things which you need to strip away that I might be made a vessel fit for the master's use. That prayer is sometimes accompanied by pain. That prayer is sometimes accompanied by suffering. That prayer is sometimes accompanied by loss. But it's a prayer in faith, not conducive all the time to mortal happiness, but a prayer for those that would understand God and our relationship to God, understand who He is, and in the knowledge of God, be so desperate to be drawn deeper into the knowledge of God, so desperate to drink deeper of the well of the knowledge of God, so desperate to be more like the image of God, to be used of God, to be rightly related to God, that we would say, I count all things but dung for the excellency of that knowledge. May that be the prayer of our hearts this evening. And may that be the desire of our hearts as we walk throughout the week. Let's Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.